0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Luke records, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Of course, in our last session and looking at Acts chapter 1, we saw that there was a group of 120 believers there. The apostles, Mary, the mother of Jesus, some of the women, and the brothers of Christ were part of that group of 120. And they gathered together and they were uh, in prayer together. The Lord had ascended and during the intermediary time, they selected matthias to replace judas in the apostolic band now verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that the day of pentecost arrived now pentecost means 50 because it was the feast that would happen on the 50th day after the first fruits feast basically it was a came after a period of 7 weeks of harvesting and they that started by offering the first barley sheaf during the Passover so uh, by the time of the cross of Christ by the time the first century came around it was one of the three great pilgrim festivals of Judaism and so what that means is that Jerusalem now here about ten days after the ascension of Christ the city of Jerusalem is now packed with people Uh, Pilgrims have come from all over to be part of this day of Pentecost or this Pentecost celebration. And so you have Jews from all over the Roman Empire, all over the known world, who have uh, descended upon Jerusalem in order to partake in uh, the Pentecost celebrations. And so this is God's great strategy because the Holy Spirit is about to be poured out upon the church and what better moment than when Jerusalem is absolutely filled with people from all over the world? Now, as they were gathered together in one place, it says in verse 2 And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there they are, together in one place. It doesn't tell us in this chapter that they were in a moment of prayer, but that might be a healthy assumption after noticing that they did gather together in prayer in chapter 1 and that Jesus gave them the directions to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. But as they're there, gathered together in one place, the Spirit, like a with a sound like a mighty rushing wind, you know, uh, this might remind us of the lifeless Adam uh, and God breathing the breath of life into Adam. Uh, and now here, the breath of the Spirit is going to make the lifeless church come alive. Uh, This might remind us of the prophecy in Ezekiel about the dead bones coming to life by the wind of God. And so the mighty rushing breath of God or the wind of God comes. And one of the first evidences here is that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, of course, this is special moment for the church. This is a a very unique thing that is taking place uh, for the believers. It's not something that's going to be repeated throughout the rest of the book of Acts. These divided tongues of fire appearing to them and resting on each one of them. But for these Jewish believers now, there might have been a sense in which Uh, this is a portrayal of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, God had showed up in the form of the flame or fire in many different moments. Uh, There was the fire that burnt when he made the covenant with Abraham. There was the fire that burnt yet did not consume the bush uh, there in uh, the backside of the wilderness for Moses. There was the pillar of fire that burnt and led the people of Israel through the wilderness wanderings. There was the fire on the mountaintop at the giving of the law. And there was the fire of God at his presence in the tabernacle. So here now, it's as if the Lord is saying, my presence is upon them. I'm giving my spirit to them. My presence is upon their lives. Jesus had uh, John had said of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And now here this fire is a representation, it seems, of God's presence upon these early believers. And they were all, Luke tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a phrase that we are going to see many times in the book of Acts, uh, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems as if those who were now baptized with the Spirit would have various moments in their lives where they needed a fresh filling of God's Spirit, that the Spirit would need to come upon them for a new opportunity, a new open door uh, for ministry. You will see this many times in Peter's life, that Peter, again, would be filled or with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit would come upon him for a specific work. Now, so there they are, filled with the Spirit, and they're speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now, there were, verse 5, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Again, remember the strategy of God. He waits for this moment, this day of Pentecost, when Jerusalem was teeming with people from all over the world. And he, at this moment, devout men from every nation under heaven, these pious Jews scattered abroad. And at this sound, verse 6, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them the church speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all these who are speaking galileans and how is it that we hear each of us in his own language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, this is a powerful statement that the crowd begins to say. Luke, of course, is organizing this general statement. It's not that the crowd got together and chanted this statement all at the same time in unison. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, it's that Luke is giving us a record and he's saying, look, these are the people that were present that were bewildered at what was taking place that day. And one of the things that that they were so amazed by was the fact that these Uh, for the most part, Galileans, uh, who their accent and their education levels would have kept them from being able to speak these other languages. They get together and they are now expertly speaking the native tongue of these Parthians, Medes, Elamites, all the way through uh, the entire list. And this is obviously a miracle from God. Uh, Just a little note there, the way that Luke organizes this list is generally from east to west, with the middle of the list dealing with north, then south geographically, uh, as far as, uh, you know, the listing of all these different places where people were from. And what they heard, they said, was, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. Now, of course, uh, the gift of tongues or this speaking in tongues is sometimes unfortunately seen as a very controversial uh, kind of subject. Uh, there are many, of course, in the modern church who believe that the gift of tongues is no longer available uh, for today, that this is not a gift that the Holy Spirit gives any longer. And part of the reason for that or one of the proofs of that or, or thoughts concerning that is that the gifts of the spirit and their minds were necessary for the initial thrust of the gospel throughout the world and the writing of the new testament but that once that initial thrust happened and once the new testament was completed the spiritual gifts were no longer available, partly because they're no longer as necessary. We now have the Word of God. We know what we are supposed to do, and the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. Nobody denies that, the Spirit living inside of his believers. The problem with that is that there is scant biblical uh, evidence for that Position, uh, a little passage is taken from First Corinthians chapter thirteen to try to give that kind of background, but uh, it doesn't seem at all as if Paul is referring to the completion of the New Testament there but referring to a day in eternity where we meet God face to face and it has always seemed odd to me that the New Testament epistles would include directions on how to operate in the gifts of the Spirit if once the New Testament, that those epistles are, once the New Testament was completed, those gifts would no longer be necessary. It would seem to me more logical, if that was the case, to simply say inside of the epistles, hey, right now you have gifts of the Spirit, but don't worry. When these letters are finished in a few years, uh, you won't need them anymore. So uh, make sure you have a heads up about that. So uh, it seems that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. But now, this gift, the gift of tongues, uh, some see it, as I said, as no longer available. Uh, some see it as something that was evangelistic here, but seemingly developed into a more personal gift uh, later. Uh, uh, Sort of the idea being that this would be like a, a missionary gift, you know, an ability to preach the gospel in a language that you do not already know. Uh, the problem though with that view is that in 1st Corinthians chapter 14, Paul gave us some elucidation about the gift of tongues. And there he said in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2 that one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So when someone is speaking with the gift of tongues according to 1 Corinthians 14 uh, it is not a message to man it is as Paul said a message to God. And later in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 5, he said, you know, this is a private gift, but uh, it can be used in public in a prayer meeting or something like that if there is someone who is able to you know, give a gift of or use the gift of interpretation so that, Paul says, the church may be built up. And it it is edifying to hear uh, a spirit-infused prayer from God. There have been times where I've seen this type of operation of that gift, where someone prays in an unknown language, someone then gives an interpretation of that prayer, and it doesn't sound like a thus says the Lord kind of interpretation because that's not how someone praying to God speaks. I wouldn't pray to God and say, thus saith the Lord. This is me speaking to God. Oh, Lord, would you do this? Lord, would you do that? But when you hear that and you know, man, that was a prayer that came through that person, by the Spirit, you know you're hearing something that is very in line with the will, the plan, the purpose of God. So, to me at least, in verse 11, when it says that they heard them telling in our, they say, in our own tongues the mighty works of God, it seems to me that what the church was doing was that with the Spirit upon them, they were talking to God about his mighty works which is, of course, part of prayer, praising God for what he'd done. And that in that process, uh, the people that were there were able to listen in to this prayer that was ascending to God, and they were hearing it uh, in their own language. Now it says in verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So there were plenty of people there, some mocking them and ascribing all of this to some kind of uh, drunkenness, which seems absurd to me. I've, I've never known alcohol to produce the ability to clearly speak in an unknown language, but you know they were grasping for some kind of explanation at this moment. Now it says in verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, Okay, so now we have Peter standing up and beginning to speak, standing with the eleven. And this is just the grace of God upon uh, Peter's life. And He's going to preach the first message here in the book of Acts. We've already seen him stand up to help lead the charge in selecting a replacement for Judas. And now he's going to preach this powerful message. And the first point that he's going to make is that all of this that they were watching fulfilled prophecies that were found in the Old Testament. He says, verse 16, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this uh, section, verse 17 to 21, that I just read to you, is a direct quotation of uh, a section of Joel uh, chapter 2. Verse 30 to uh, 32 is, uh, well, actually, that's the part that will be fulfilled uh, in the future, the second half of uh, Peter's quotation and so, Peter here announces a few things that are very powerful for us to understand. First of all, he says, In the last days it shall be. This is helpful because Peter is announcing, The last days have come. We are living in the last days. It was a moment that began almost 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, but that day has come. And then he announces, that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, sons and daughters and young and old. What this helps us understand is that this is a different era than was available previously. Uh, in the Old Testament time, uh, not everyone had total and complete access to the Spirit of God upon their lives. But now believers have the opportunity, young and old, male and female, to see the spirit of God being poured out upon their lives. Peter draws their attention to things like prophecies and visions and dreams. Now, we don't seek the dreams. We seek Jesus, but he does at times give these to his people. And Peter alludes to wonders in the heavens above and on the earth below. It, it seems to me that Peter is quoting as well, part of Joel's prophecy that is yet future. You know, verse 17 and 18, the spirit being poured out on all flesh that has happened and is still happening. But verse 19, 20 and 21 are still yet future. Uh, He talks about things like uh, blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood. These are things that are cataclysmic and obvious, apparent to all. Jesus said in Matthew twenty four twenty nine that after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The powerful thing that Peter announces is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is probably why Peter quoted the entire prophecy, even about things that are yet future. He wanted to be able to quote the portion that says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So point one of his message, this fulfills prophecy. Call on the name of the Lord, be saved, the Spirit comes upon you. Now point two is that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. He says, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's appealing to their knowledge. He says, you yourselves know about Jesus. And he refers to the crucifixion and really places the blame upon them that, you know, they had done this, they had crucified and they had killed uh, him. It had happened by the hands of lawless men. But Peter also says that this was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. jesus's resurrection is a basic doctrine in the book of acts chapter after chapter we're going to see them allude to the resurrection of christ and we have to remember that when peter says this he is an eyewitness to this resurrection. now in verse 25 he begins to quote from psalm 16 when he says for david says concerning him i saw the lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So David here, as he as he's being quoted by Peter, tells us that it was not possible for death to hold Jesus. And David wrote some psalms about the Messiah. And in some of them, they are partly about David. But some elements of his psalms only have application in the future Messiah. And this is one of them. You'll not allow my soul to be abandoned in Hades and you won't let me see corruption. The Holy One will not see corruption. And so he's predicting that the body of the Messiah would not be corrupted in the grave. Brothers, verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You know, David's body had seen corruption, so his psalm must be about someone else. Being therefore, verse 30, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This, Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter tells us what Psalm 16 is really about. David foresaw the resurrection of the Christ from the dead. This was the sign that David was alluding to. So his second point is very simple. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who rose, so he's the holy one, the Messiah that David prophesied about. Now his third point is that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church, that everything that they were seeing that day was the result of Jesus, who is the Messiah, but who's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Again, this is what Christ does. Uh, He is the giver of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit from his position in heaven. Exalted at the right hand of the God and receiving the promise of the Spirit from the Father, he poured out this that they had all seen. For David, Peter said did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and this is from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter announces, he says, look, a day is coming uh, where Jesus will judge all flesh. His enemies will become his footstool. And and Peter has just reminded them that they and and their group were responsible for the crucifying of Jesus, even though it had happened according to the divine plan of God. uh, Still, they were the ones who had carried it out. And so there was the divine responsibility, but also the human responsibility working together. And quoting from Psalm 110 Peter is making sure that they understand that there would be a day where his enemies would become his footstool so let all the house of Israel know that's that's the the appeal of Peter now here his final point is very simple he applies it into their lives he says in verse 37 it says now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles Brothers, what shall we do? You know, they were convinced of their crime. They'd killed their long-anticipated Messiah. And Peter said to them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he implores these people to repent of the sin of crucifying their Messiah and to be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of their sins and they'd receive the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Peter, of course, is not at this moment communicating a salvation that comes by baptism. You can almost read that way at first glance when he's saying repent and be baptized every one of you. Uh, And of course, there are some who believe in baptismal regeneration, but uh, there are many problems with that view. I think that the main problem is that there are countless passages that talk about faith alone and have no mention of baptism, which just seems like a real cruelty from God. If baptism was any part of the salvation process, then you'd really have to make sure that there was no passage anywhere that spoke of faith without baptism being mentioned but there are so many John 3:16 Romans 4 Romans 11 Galatians 3 Ephesians 2 on and on we learn about grace and faith working together in operation and that those are the elements that lead to us tapping into the forgiveness of sins and salvation that uh, God offers it seems here that what Peter is simply saying is that baptism would be the result of the forgiveness of sins, verse 38, that was theirs. Peter tells them that this promise, this gift of the Spirit that they had just seen in evidence amongst these people on the day of Pentecost would be given to all who are far off. And so I don't even know that Peter understood how broadly that this would be applied over the years. But the Holy Spirit given to every believer uh, throughout time. And with many other words, he, verse 40, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just amazing. This is the birth of the New Testament church. This is the, the launch of the gospel into the world, and just amazing to, to to watch and to see this incredible response to the message. Now it tells us in verse forty-two, as we close out this chapter, it says, "And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers." Uh, there was just a full devotion to a persisting or continuing in. These four different elements. You had the Word of God. You know, they just gave themselves to learning the Bible. You know, they, uh, as Jews who had, were now converts to Christ, they had been fairly familiar with the Old Testament but just hadn't understood who their Messiah was. And so now they do. So they're, in a sense, relearning or learning with light uh, the Old Testament. They also were in fellowship together. They just kind of shared life together during that era. They ate many meals together, broke bread together, it says, and they even spent a lot of time in prayer together. They devoted themselves to those four elements and um, obviously this would a lot of it have to happen in smaller groups than the three thousand they couldn't always three thousand of them eat a meal together or have Bible studies together or fellowship together or pray together, so they were obviously breaking up into smaller groups throughout Jerusalem just. Waiting uh, upon the Lord. Now, I know that some will point to Acts 2.42 as like the model for what the church is supposed to look like. But as much as it's a beautiful verse and worthy of emulation and also worthy of being a little bit of a diagnostic for us. In our modern era to to figure out whether we're a healthy church or not, you know, asking the question, are we devoting ourselves to the word and fellowship and breaking bread and prayers? As much as that is the case, we have to remember that this is an an incomplete church at this point. Uh, They're doing great things here, but they need to continue to go out and to bring the gospel throughout all the world. This is just a Jewish church at this point, and so they need to become eventually uh, Gentile as well. But in that moment, it was beautiful. And awe, verse 43, came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people, so they were they were just living in this communal kind of sense, maybe they were anticipating that Christ would return at, at any moment at, at any day, and maybe they were just selling and you know distributing and in a voluntary sense, there they are, just kind of gathered together, waiting upon the Lord and the Lord verse forty seven added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was the Lord that was building the church. It was the Lord that was giving them expansion. And as we mentioned in Acts chapter 1, when Luke began the book of Acts, he said, The former account I wrote, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And here he's saying that the Lord continued. The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. God bless you and amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.